Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Hi. You know that movie you always wanted to see, but you didn't for whatever reason? Well, I call those black hole films. Everyone has them, and this podcast aims to do something about that. I'm Jeremy Lalonde, and every episode I'll be joined by one or more guests to watch a film that at least someone in that group hasn't seen. We'll talk about our expectations of it before it, and then our thoughts after it. This is episode 63, and I'm joined by Chandler Levac, an acclaimed short filmmaker working towards making her first feature. She's also a journalist who specializes in cultural criticism. She does film reviews, interviews, articles, essays, you name it. Search her out. You will not be disappointed. And we're going to sit down and watch a film together. All right, so we're sitting down to watch The Shop Around the Corner. I always want to call it The Little Shop Around... <laughs> the Little know. Shop of Corners. Yeah. Uh, I'm Jeremy. I have not seen this movie. I'm Chandler Levesque. I've also never seen this film. And you picked this one. Well, you wanted to watch... Explain why you picked this movie. Well, I picked this movie because um, I my favorite filmmaker is Cameron Crowe. And um, I just rewatched Almost Famous two weeks ago. That's my favorite movie. And I forgot how fucking great it was. I knew how great it was, um, but I just somehow just forgot how fucking great it was. Anyway, you already know this because it's your favorite movie. But <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and there for like basically my entire life, I spent my entire life trying to track down this book that he wrote called Conversations with Wilder, which basically after he made. No, after he made Say Anything, but before he made Jerry Maguire. No, I think after he made Jerry Maguire, he basically like took two years off to do this um, book-long uh, series of interviews with Billy Wilder, who is his favorite filmmaker. Yeah, I love Billy Wilder, too. But, and yeah. uh, I basically have been looking for this book my entire life, and I could never find it. I always go to bookstores and ask for it. Is that because it's just they didn't make very many? It was, like, yeah, it's printed? like out of print and like impossible to find. And then... And he spent two years of his life on it. That's so sad. <laughs> yeah. And Put then, it out as a PDF, man. It's not that hard. <laughs> and then uh, one of my, my friends, um, who's a great filmmaker from Montreal, Matthew Rankin, had it, so he let me borrow it. So it was like amazing coincidental thing, because I... See, you know, I've read it. I was going to say, if you ever get a copy, <laughs> I would love to borrow it, because I am also a big Cameron Crowe and Billy Wilder fan. Yeah, it's an amazing book. Um, and, and, you know, basically one of the things that they touch on is what an inspiration Ernst Lubitsch is for Billy Wilder. And um, one thing that I thought was really interesting is this idea of the Lubitsch touch, which... <laughs> I've heard that as a phrase, but I'll let you... Yeah, it's it's just kind of this, like, hallmark of Billy... of Ernst Lubitsch's directing style, and I guess it's been kind of very influential in kind of romantic comedies and comedies from then on after, and I never really knew what it meant, Um but I have this thing on my phone that at least is sort of a loose definition of what the, the Lubish touch is. Lubish touch. And we can see, I, I just think I'd like to know what the Lubish touch is, essentially. Yeah. Is this your first one time seeing... A Lubish movie? Yeah. I saw, I think, To Have and Have Not, like a long time ago, which is sort of like a satire, like a play within a yeah. play. I've seen Heaven Can Wait. Okay. And did you notice <laughs> the Lubitsch touch? Well, explain, explain what it is, and okay. then I'll let you know if I, if I felt it. All right, well, Cameron Crowe defines the Lubitsch touch as the elegant joke full of character that becomes another surprising joke, which becomes an even funnier joke, which becomes the ultimate joke that you never expected, 
which becomes the movie that you can't wait to see again. I fucking love that. Yeah, me too. That makes... But I also kind of feel like that's a lot of great filmmakers have stolen from that. Or at least maybe have unconsciously taken that. Because I'm always a big fan, especially of comedies, where they build upon the jokes. Yeah. And there's callbacks and the things that you're not expecting. is is basically that. So it's like a joke upon a joke upon a joke that, like, I guess kind of is layered and character-driven and emotional that kind of keeps transcending as it as the scene goes on or maybe yeah. as the moment continues. Yeah. Which I think is really fascinating. And uh, I really love romantic comedies. Um, and I know this movie is also an... Insp- I, the movie You've Got Mail is... Yeah. Um, Kind of a re- a modern remake of it. Not kind of. I think it totally. Yeah. <laughs> and the shop around the corner is, I think, what Meg Ryan's bookstore is called in that yes. movie. So that's like an homage. So basically, I feel like you know, if you love Nora Ephron, you have to love Ernst Lubitsch, and Probably. you got to go back to basics if you care about romantic comedies. Well, and I think this—he's one of like the godfathers of it that doesn't get the credit that. Like, people like Billy Wilder do, right? Mm -hmm. And it's almost interesting going back, and that's what's been really fun about doing this podcast, too, is just going back and looking at the the influences of influences, right? And going back and just looking at, it's like, well, you know, you're a Cameron Crowe fan. It's like, well, who did Cameron Crowe love? Wilder. Who did Wilder love? Lubitsch, you know? Yeah, I wonder it's like, who inspired Lubitsch? That's a good question. And it's like, you look at that... Maybe, like, Charlie Chaplin, or... Probably. But you just look, it's, it's that Midnight in Paris phenomenal where it's like everyone has thinks the generation before was that great storytelling generation because of that's their influences yeah that's a really good point and i think you know uh i don't know how you feel like i don't know if you feel like you watch movies now as a filmmaker and it's, sometimes it's hard to kind of turn that off or if you can sometimes still enjoy them just as a person who likes film. Sometimes I can. I think when they're really good, you can. And you yeah. Can. I always sit down and I try to rewatch movies as a filmmaker and go, I'm going to study it this time. And then what, what, I, I did that when I, because when I went up to, I just uh, got back from Sudbury, I made a movie up there. And so I took a stack of movies with me. Because mm. uh, movies that I hadn't seen yet, that I had bought and I hadn't watched, or movies that I wanted to rewatch. And then also came across an amazing garage sale where I picked up a whole bunch of discs of stuff that I, for some reason, hadn't had, which was why I rewatched Almost Famous, because I, I realized I hadn't didn't own it on disc, which oh, was, yeah. was amazing to me. Um, and going, I'm going to rewatch this and just study as a filmmaker, and, of course, 20 minutes in, I was just like, fuck, I haven't been paying attention at all to the filmmaker. I'm <laughs> just so drawn in to the story. Uh, one, one way that a lot of people uh, say to is the best way to study movies is to turn the sound off. Yeah. Um, because then you're forced to concentrate on only the visuals. Yeah. I did uh, that a lot in university at film school. Like, uh, I studied film at uni- the University of Toronto, and one of the first things they made us do in our, like, intro to cinema class was this thing called a shot-by-shot analysis, where we had to kind of break apart a scene from Roman Holiday, and we had to analyze, like, what kind of shot it was, how long the duration was, you know, does the camera move? What's the framing? What happens in the scene? Write down the dialogue. And we had to do it for every single shot in the movie. And that was like a, a really interesting way, I guess, of dissecting something. Yeah. Do you, but do, do you meticulous still do, and annoying. Do you still do stuff like that at all? Or? No, I'm so no. lazy now. But I'll, I'll watch stuff and um, 
Yeah, do a lot of screen grabs on my laptop. Yeah, that's good <laughs> for doing lookbooks and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, I find... I, I learned, don't know what your audience is like. I don't know if they're like, oh, yeah, lookbooks. Or some of them are. Yeah, some of them do it. Um, lookbooks are something that, uh, uh, for those that are non-film people, are something that when you're getting ready to make a film, you often will put together this thing called a lookbook, which is kind of like an emotional, visual kind of jumble of pictures and words that kind of describe the feeling you want the movie to be, both from like a visual standpoint and also... Just the kind of themes you're trying to get out, and and it's 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 good for sending to financers uh, to get a sense of what the movie will look and feel like. But also, it's sometimes great to show to crew. Mm-hmm. Sometimes actors like to see it. It's good if you're sending out to uh, you know a higher level cast. Sometimes that's something that can sell them as well. Knowing if the, you know if you're a film if it's a different kind of film for you as a filmmaker to try to show that you have a sense of what it's going to be. Because it's hard for a script to just sell itself as a, as a final movie. Sometimes. Yeah, you need the the vibe. Yeah, exactly. So, um, oh, that's so much fun. Yeah, no, I do that too, and I I try to. Um, I almost learn more from watching bad movies. Oh yeah. Uh, and just going, why didn't that work? At least that's kind of reassuring. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. It all depends. Because I'm also a film critic, so sometimes. I feel like I have different ways of seeing movies. Um, like, there's some movies to me that are just kind of like an old sweatshirt or mm-hmm. like a, a, a comfort blanket or something that you just want to, like, drape over you and you can kind of go back to them at any time and they're just sort of like... They're just like... Yeah, they're like nourishment. Comfort food. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you give certain things a pass, I think, based on how you experienced it. Like, I think... Who is it? I was watching... Um, uh, I think one of the first podcasts we did was for The Princess Bride. Uh, and Alan Backus from the Harold Greenberg Fund came and watched it. And he had never seen it. Oh. Right? So he was watching it for the first time as as, uh, as an adult. And, of course, I grew up with that movie and loved that movie because I loved it as a kid. And so all of his imperfections just wash over me. Yeah. Because I let them go. But for him, he's watching it with a really critical eye. <laughs> and, and I'm they're going, you're being cruel to this. Stop hurting this thing I love. You know, it's like beating on my grandmother for being gently racist when it's like it's not her fault she doesn't know any better she grew up in that generation um there's this really great chapter in um i just read the mark and jay duplass book like brothers Mm -hmm. which i highly recommend to anyone who is either a fan of theirs or uh an artist in any way especially if you're a filmmaker and especially if you collaborate with others because it's really about how they collaborate and how they work together but there's this great chapter called in defense of air supply (laughs) And it's about the idea that depending on when you listen to Air Supply, they're either the best band or the worst band ever. And they're like, if you're in the mood for like really introspective thinking, and you know, Air Supply is terrible because their lyrics are on the nose, they're really melodramatic. But if you just got broken up with or <laughs> if you're feeling sick, it's like putting Air Supply on can change your life and can make your day so much better. And so, and, and inside of that, they started talking about the idea that, you know, we always talk about how art is subjective and what some person will enjoy, another person might not, and that's totally okay. But then what they kind of extrapolated on was this concept that not only is art subjective between people, it's subjective within ourselves in that on any given day, you'll hate something that tomorrow you might totally be into based on how you felt and I am, I'm sure just what you're, you were talking about, this idea of comfort food. Like, there are movies that I will 
put on when I'm sick. Because I just want something fun and light and enjoyable that I would never put on on a regular day. Um, yeah, I'm not really watching, like, the Decalogue, you know. No. Um, when I'm feeling sick. But I, I also don't really believe in that idea of guilty pleasures because I think that delegitim- G- delegitimizes art, you know. So what's your best guilty pleasure? Your favorite guilty uh, pleasure? I don't think I have them. Like, I feel like my taste in cinema is pretty um, democratic or something. Like, I, I mean, I just said that my favorite filmmaker is Cameron Crowe. And, like, I mean, I think that he's, like, a great American auteur. But I don't know if other people would consider, like, Jerry Maguire, like, high art or something. But I love that. He, I'm, I'm, I'm very similar where it's like, I, I love kind of everything. There's yeah. No, there's no genre that I don't love. I grew up with the weirdest film education that my uncle used to pirate VHS tapes oh. and would put just whatever he rented that weekend would end up on a, on a tape, right? So it's like he'd record them the old way where you could fit like three movies on a VHS tape. And so I would just borrow these tapes from him when I was, you know, eight. And it would be mishmash of like horror, comedy, thriller. And there'd be no rhyme or reason for the three movies that were on there, but I, that's how I would watch them, and I'd watch them all in a row. And cool. so I grew up with this mishmash of a genre, and just kind of appreciating everything. Yeah, I think you can kind of take from everything, and I guess the more I learn about um, film, it kind of feels like what you do is you sort of like extrapolate stuff that you're interested in, and, and then you can kind of like almost like inject your own personal pain and trauma onto like a skeleton from another movie oh i love that <laughs> no that's such a great that's such a great visual which is kind of what uh i'm i think i'm just gonna do i'm just gonna take yeah. elements of movies that i like and then sort of funnel them through myself and then maybe that's a way to sort of eventually you sort of hit on something that's actually you i think that's how you you find your voice right is you you pull apart the things that you like in other people's things mm-hmm. and then you find what, what your version of that is or 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 you become like the combination of these these things i think like woody allen always said that he was you know this combination of bergman and the marx brothers sure and i can see that and that's, that's kinda, great and that's kind of how he his voice was he he couldn't exist with either, either of those two things but you think about you know the stuff that woody allen made it it's a weird mesh, but it also is so totally him. But now you have this other generation of people that have taken Woody Allen and, you know, dick and fart jokes. And right. mashed those together, right? So, okay, so do you think that there's, like, a Lalonde touch? Oh. It's... I like the... I, I've always said that I'm, like, a comedy filmmaker who doesn't know how to write jokes. <laughs> um, which I think is probably similar to the Leibniz Sounds thing. Sounds great. <laughs> no, no, but you know what I mean? But it's like that idea that it's like, I don't write like set up punchline, like here's the joke, you can just put it in any setting. Like I really, I, all of my stuff just comes out of characters mm-hmm. and situations. So it's like, if you pulled this line out of here and put it somewhere else, it just wouldn't be funny. Uh, but I also think that like the filmmakers that I love the most do that as well. Um, like, I'm sure this guy, that's part of what this is, what they're talking about with this is the idea that it's like, it's just jokes that are built upon characters and things that don't seem like jokes become jokes. Yeah, which I think is, like, really fascinating. And I think that, yeah, mm-hmm. if you care about comedy, it's sort of important to go back in history and kind of learn from the greats. Oh, that's just it. it exactly. And, it's like, and, and, you know, to, to your point, what you're saying is, like, there's probably not a lot of people out there that consider, like, Jerry Maguire or Almost Famous high art. But I think there's a lot of people from our generation that do. Yeah. You know? And I think the same as, like, I was. I get really excited whenever the Criterion Collection puts out something that I love, like, puts out 
election or the breakfast club mm. or night of the living dead. And I'm like, yes, see, it's like, thank you for <laughs> validating this other nerdy stuff that doesn't always get a light shone on it. Right. Comedy in particular is kind of like the redheaded stepchild of film. You know, people, yeah. people don't give it the respect or, or do that. It, that it's really due. I think that's really true, and I think that's especially true in, in Canada. Like, even though Canadians are kind of known so prolifically for comedy, you know, like, like an SCTV and Saturday Night Live, and God, there's so many amazing comedians and, and actors that have come out of Canada, but when it comes to cinema, kind of like the trajectory of what you associate Canadian film as is a little bit darker and yeah. more demented than, than comedy, but... And yet there's something, I think Canadians are funnier because we have so much more self-awareness and, um, like, self-criticism built inside of us or something. Yeah. Um, which I think is why, that's like where, if you're, if you're born kind of being othered to another country mm-hmm. from your infancy um, of your cultural exports, like, then I think that you sort of, you can't help but be funnier because there's like... Yeah. Already an innate understanding that there's something odd about you. Yeah, exactly. You're used to growing up with that older sibling, that <laughs> the other country being always being loved more than you. Right. And you just having to go, well, now I have to try that much harder to get recognized. <laughs> I love that. All right. We should dive in. Yes. This is, this is officially the longest intro I've done. But you I can cut I, it, all of it. No, I won't cut a, a second of it. <laughs> I, I, we could keep on doing this for an hour, but we should probably watch the movie. Okay, I'm very excited. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. All right, we just finished. And? Oh my God, I loved it so much. So much. I want to live in that movie forever. I love that um, we, we figured out really quickly that it was Frank Morgan. Uh, as, as Mr. Mank- Manch- Mr. Matichuk. Matichuk. Uh, Hugo Magic, who was the uh, the wizard in the Wizard of Oz, and I don't think I've ever seen anything otherwise. Although I, I would probably argue that the only person I recognize in this movie, other than him, is Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, I think for me too. Like Margaret Sullivan, I don't recognize at all, and she had first billing, which means that she had something going on in 1940 before uh, this happened. Yeah, her IMDb star meter was just lit. It was, it was huge. She was huge. Um, yeah, where to start? First of all, let's just get out of the way how this takes place in Hungary? Yeah. Um, Budapest? Do you ever, do you usually give like a plot synopsis? I'm sorry, this is... Oh, we can. Time. We can be totally spoilery. Okay. Uh, I, I assume... For people who don't know what the movie is about, or how do you sort of, do you usually like explain what... Oh, sometimes we kind of get into it as we go <laughs> along. So the movie, uh, I haven't actually seen You've Got Mail. Oh, you haven't? No, it's one of my black holes. It's so, very charming. But it's similar to this, only it's like internet-based, right? Well, You've Got Mail is slightly different. Like, uh, the shop around the corner... They're, they're competing shops, aren't they? Yeah. So they're in You've Got Mail, they're, they're um, Tom Hanks and... Um, Meg Ryan. ...own rival book chains, like... She has kind of this small, adorable New York City bookstore. And he's like a Barnes and Noble type, he's, right? He's going to put her out of business. So they're they're rivals in business, and they kind of keep bumping into each other, and sort of they hate each other. But then they have this secret online AOL email correspondence that's very um, heartfelt and, and, and tender. <laughs> yeah, 
I remember when the, I remember when the movie came out because it was right in, in the in the hubbub of the internet coming into its infancy and coming into kind of the popular space, and so it was it was like seen as such a modern film for for the time. But now I'm sure if you watched it, it would be so dated. <laughs> I bet you there's dial up in that movie. Um, I don't remember. I think it's all AOL though. I think they get like an uh oh when they get their emails. Yeah. Well, I think they, wasn't that their slogan for a while? You've got mail. Yes. I remember that. Yes. They probably paid for the movie. Definitely. But in this, the only mail, it comes via, you know, post. It comes from, it's very, uh, in the shop around the corner, the only mail they get yeah. is, is just a, a letter correspondence. Yeah, it's the old-fashioned one where I guess you'd write, it, like a, you'd have a, it's still a personals, right? And then, so, but you'd have a mailbox that was anonymous yeah so jimmy stewart basically plays this kind of um a man that's worked in this sort of department store for nine years and he one day answers kind of an anonymous personal um looking to speak to a correspond with a lady of like refined cultural taste yeah and they sort of fall for each other um via their letters but what he doesn't realize is that the actual identity of the letter writer is this young Woman that also works at the department store who's... who's Who just started there. working there, yeah. yeah. Yeah, at the beginning of the movie, she comes in looking for a job. Yes. Uh, and then it cuts to six months later or something, where they're, they're clear... Like, yeah, and that's what's interesting, too, is that, that you kind of... They jump ahead over all of the... Of watching them go from, you know, new colleagues to rivals. Uh, and it's not until that final scene where she kind of talks about those early days of how she was attracted to him, but she treated him badly because she <laughs> thought that would, because she read some book where that was something that you do when you like somebody, you treat them poorly. Um, and, but it didn't work. And so then it ended up just becoming bad for them. Uh, so that, cause that's something that you would, you imagine if they remade the movie now, even if they, they had it dated, You'd see that you would. They wouldn't have skipped over that six-month process. Yeah, it's weird because it actually feels more like an ensemble comedy than a um, romantic comedy, or yeah. more like workplace comedy as opposed to a romantic comedy because it it centers so much on the boss. Like, really, I think he feels like he has more star time or more screen time than even Jimmy Stewart. He might. He's such. Yeah, he's he's third billing, but he's an, yeah. An ensemble is a really good way to look at it. And it's, it's kind of a chamber piece in, in a weird way, too. You know, the way it all takes... It's like it's based on a play, I think. Yeah. Uh, it's set in the opening credits, which makes a lot of sense because it feels very much... It, it's, it's essentially a one room, with the exception of they go to the hospital room at one point, and they go to the cafe. And her apartment. And her apartment. Oh, right. Yeah, there's that scene in her apartment when she's sick. Uh, so charming. I love the uh, that moment where you think he's walking away. Um, after he find, after Jimmy Stewart finds out uh, who she, Mrs. Novak really is, that she's the girl through the other what's the, what's the other coworker's name? The guy with that terrible mustache. I don't remember. He's the only person who sounded like he might be from Hungary. Yes. Like everyone else, it was that <laughs> typical Hollywood thing where it's like the movie can take place anywhere in the world but they're all going to be Caucasians who speak perfect English. Yeah, I literally and don't know why it's said in Hungary. I guess... Maybe the play was... Mm-hmm. The play must have been and so they felt like the best way to be authentic to it was to keep it in Hungary but not 
give any, but keep it in English <laughs> with, but they still used, uh, the signs were all in, in Hungary. In Hungarian? Hungarian, yeah. Bizarre. Yes. Bizarre to me. It's so, anyway, it's a, you, you, we'd never do that now. Now they would just have it take place in Seattle <laughs> or somewhere else in the, in America. They wouldn't bother keeping it in Hungary. Fascinating. Anyway, there's that. That's that. Uh, where, what else? We th- there's so many great lines. There was that great line uh, when again in that scene when he he discovers Miss Novak who she is. But before he does, that the coworker is is talking about how he sees her, and she says something about she's dunking her cake. It's like, of course, why shouldn't she dunk? <laughs> just little, just delightful little little things like that. Yeah, and I, we saw the Lubitsch touch. Yes, I was just gonna say. Which was remarkable. Like, basically, there's this kind of continuing joke throughout the whole entire movie about these goddamn cigarette Cigarette cases that when you open them, they play like a musical tune, kind of like a music box. And that's sort of how they first beat because it's this new item in the store and the boss doesn't know if they should sell them or not. And then to prove kind of because she really desperately needs a job, what a great salesman she is. Um, Margaret Sullivan's character like tries to sell one to a lady and it gets her the job. Yeah, and the, sells then, it for way more than the boss is going to charge for it. Exactly, and then it kind of becomes this ongoing motif where it's sort of the bane of Jimmy Stewart's character's existence, but um, it just keeps going and going and going, and then eventually, like uh, kind of the the like evil villain of the piece or whatever gets shoved by Jimmy Stewart into a pile of cigarette boxes and they all play the musical theme and it's just like hilarious and unexpected and there's like this incredible payoff. It's great. Yeah, the only the only thing that I was hoping for more when they all fell was that they all just played it simultaneously. Or <laughs> it would have been better if they were all just a little st- stagnant and so it was just this chorus of them echoing each other. Uh, but that's probably just more of a reflection of the sound design of the time and the limitations. You never know. Uh, but, yeah, but exactly, you, you, you called it in the instant it happened. <laughs> uh, and it's almost like the idea behind that is giving an arc to a joke. Yeah! You know? Which I find so fascinating and so cool. I love it. And it's not even just repetition. Because, like, it's movies doing that all the time, you know, where they just, they'll do the same joke over and over again. But it's like actually like the joke gains emotional resonance and deeper complexities like as it evolves like it almost has like you were saying like kind of a character arc onto its own but just a character arc for a joke yeah although but you know what i was expecting i was expecting it to end with him giving her that pendant or whatever oh, necklace yeah. in a in a cigarette or an engagement ring in a obviously. cigarette in the cigarette box yeah so there so you, you go. Blew it. Or just blew it. You fucked up so bad. <laughs> that would have been the perfect ending for him to give her something inside that box, especially after he talked her out of giving him that same yeah, thing. Yeah, they could have had a whole gift of the magi thing because it also takes place at Christmas. Anyways, it's yeah, okay. really, really shit the bed on the uh, on the ending. No, there. I, I don't want to criticize this movie at all because it's completely perfect. <laughs> it's pretty great. Uh, can we talk about Pepe for a minute? Yeah. <laughs> Pepe, who is, uh, there's a character in it who starts off as, he calls himself something other, he's an errand boy, he's basically a delivery boy, but he calls himself something else, he like, he's the liaison between the clerks and the customers. Oh yeah, yeah, he basically like, people call the store and then he kind of does the boss's wife's errands, like buys her perfume or picks up things for her. Yeah, uh, and then he's the one, so I, 
So the movie takes this wonderful kind of dark turn halfway through. Jimmy Stewart gets fired. Yeah, which is like actually the most amazing scene of anyone getting fired that I've ever seen. Like, because it's so, it, it's, it, it stays on him the entire time. Like, as he's getting the news, as he's walking out, as he's telling the, the customers about it. And they don't play it. Like, it's it's not like um, a scene of, like, triumph or anyone telling anyone off. It's just, like, immediately how horrible and humiliating it is to get fired. And how you're just kind of trapped in that moment with him. And I love the, the narrative point of view in that you don't know why he's been fired. Yeah. Like, you're confused. You're trying to... And I love that the movie takes this time letting and it doesn't take forever you find out a scene later uh when everyone leaves for the night and then the the private eye comes along and you realize that the the boss's wife was sleeping with one of the employees and he assumed it was jimmy stewart's character but it's it's a weird movie because i feel like it the first half is really slow like basically the first 30 minutes feel like one big long scene and then yeah. all of a sudden there's a point where, like, it shifts, and then all of a sudden, like, all of these crazy dramatic beats happen in, like, ten minutes, and you're like, whoa! <laughs> Slow down, movie! Yeah, like, whoa! It was just racing along for 1940. Uh, yeah, but this, is, but this is also the 40s where movies could just take their time that way. People, you know, it, it's, it's similar to going to a play now where I think we're so, um, even we rewatched. um... Uh, a bunch of 80s movies when we were up in Sudbury and we watched City Slickers. And City Slickers has like a full half hour setup. Really? Like that movie, the setup for that movie now would be 10 minutes long. Right. It's just, it takes, it, it, it felt like it took so long to get going. Um, but you know, back, but now we, you know, movie, the setups for movies are so quick and, and TV shows the same way because we, we live in a world where, you know, people will just turn it off if they're not drawn in in the first little bit. Where, you know, back in the 1940s, it's similar going to the theater now, where if you, you put the effort in going to see a play, you're going to sit and watch. So a play can take its time and unfold itself a little bit more. Whereas similar to the movies in the 1940s, is like, that was your evening's entertainment. It wasn't necessarily super expensive, but it wasn't cheap either. And there wasn't like there was 30 things playing that you could watch. Or you could go home and watch something on TV. You know, there was probably one or two movies playing at a time back then. So you would, you know, you could, you you would sit through the whole thing. You know, you would, you don't, you weren't necessarily competing for people's attention. And so, but that again said, you know, the credit to this movie is even inside of that. It's we were saying while we were watching it, this is totally engaging. Yeah, it's it's incredible, and it also is really like. Um I can see how Billy Wilder would be incredibly inspired because it t- totally it has the same things that I love about The Apartment, like which is one of my absolute favorite movies of all. Same. Time. Oh, the first time I watched The Apartment was at film school, and someone we were we were just passing videotapes back and forth, and someone loaded to me, and I watched it one morning at six o'clock in the morning because I couldn't <laughs> sleep, and I was fucked for the rest oh, of the yeah. day. Oh yeah, what a great movie to watch at six in the morning. Oh, and just go. Because I threw it in going, whatever this is going to be. It's called The Apartment. I'm sure it's meh. And just being in a haze of, what is this? And I want more of this. And realizing also that I'm never going to get this again. Yeah. Like, this was such yeah. a special movie. And now I've experienced it. And I can't experience it again for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's kind of... I mean, I would say it's just like a deeply humane comedy. Like, um, it's genuinely romantic. It's, this movie is yeah. genuinely surprising. 
I feel like all the characters are treated with, like, such dignity, but the movie also can laugh at them and laugh at, like, their ego and... But take themselves seriously, yeah. too. Like, like, just similar to, like, like, similar to The Apartment and similar to this movie, there's that moment about halfway through where it takes a bit of a dark turn. Yeah. Like, um, I just keep on saying the, the boss's last name. Ma- Ma- Matichek? Matichek, you know, has a, a very brief suicide attempt that Pepe interrupts. Um, that, that turns the whole movie on its heel. So just the previous scene, he had fired Jimmy Stewart, mm-hmm. and now it, it turns completely around where Jimmy Stewart ends up getting the manager job to fill in while the boss is kind of mentally recovering from everything that's been going on. Uh, and the apartment has that moment, too. I, I won't say what it is in case you haven't seen it. Uh, I did do The Apartment as, as a podcast, so you can go back and, and re-listen to that if you have seen The Apartment. But the apartment takes a very dark turn halfway through, and and it's almost the opposite where it's a movie that's kind of chugging along, and then halfway through the movie it just kind of stops and stalls and spends a long time just with Jack Lemmon and Shirley MacLaine. Yeah, you inside the apartment for you know the next half an hour. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's glorious. It's just so so good. Uh, yeah, and so you can see the influences here. But you can see. How even someone like Cameron Crowe kind of gets that, and and me like I'm inspired by this kind of stuff because I always love, I always you know believe the best comedies, um, you know, they they take the first half of the movie to really make you love the characters and really get involved in them through comedy and through that kind of stuff, but then halfway through you can start playing with it a bit more, and you can and you you don't have to lean in and rely on, on the comedy as much. And in a way, you almost need a break from it. Anyway, you need it to become something else. Otherwise, even comedy just becomes tiresome after a while. You know, if, if the rhythm stays too much of the same, it needs to shift in something else. But then you have this beautiful thing where, like, you know, the movie does start getting darker. Not darker, but just more dramatic. And then the Liebich touch comes in. <laughs> and, it, and can you imagine how that would have played to audiences? In the 1940s, right? It's like the most dramatic moment. Like Jimmy Stewart has just become the boss, and he start, He's basically beating on this guy he's firing, and then all of a sudden these music boxes take over. Yeah, it's it's tremendous. Yeah, it's a great moment. And everyone just has to, and it's that great awkward moment where now you have to stop. Like it just completely undercuts everything that's just been going on. And now you've got to deal with the awkwardness of the situation. <laughs> stupid yeah, everyone's thing. just trying to like put them back on the shelves. I love too how the music boxes, you know, in the opening scene, the woman swindles this other woman into selling them, and so clearly the boss decides to 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 sell them. But then they never sell again. Like they're on <laughs> sale, and then they're just stacked up trying to get rid of these damn things. Yeah. And then and then I think she even makes a comment about how she is the only one that actually works. Yeah. <laughs> so it's great. It's just so great. Uh, what else? And it, it's interesting too, just um, to kind of studying the the cinematography of the time because it's so very simple and restrained. Um, it is, but I think it's actually. Well, I'm always so impressed by these kind of movies in terms of how they they stage things cinematically because it is true that it's kind of these like 
um, shots where it's just sort of following the characters. Yeah, and it's, it's a lot of masters. Yeah, and it's that very like classical Hollywood editing style where it's sort of like a wide shot, then you punch into a medium, then you go to a close-up for an emphasis or something. But they don't do that that much. Yeah, they like, really don't. There's only a couple times in the movie that they go in for for what we, what we would now call coverage or, or, you know, we'd have like a medium shot. And it's really just, they do it in the scene, it's mostly just with... Uh, Novak and with um, Jimmy Stewart's character uh, is the the scene when they go to the cafe. They do it there. And at the end. And at the very end. And I think it's only in those two scenes where we get yeah. coverage. I don't even think they do it at the hospital scene. I don't know? think so. I mean, like, yeah, I it really feels like two it's them. mostly medium two shots. And I love that kind of, of thing. Of people talking side by side for a long time, which is wonderful. Yeah. Or someone moves out of frame and the camera kind of follows and the other person like swiftly like just kind of gets ushered into the next yeah. shot. And I'd say if anything, that's something I, I'm leaning more into the more I go along with my stuff. I love, I'm just putting more emphasis on staging mm-hmm. and really loving that. And then, and just using those um, tighter shots very sparingly and, and only for great emphasis, right? I'm... I believe very strongly in that there's a specific reason for every kind of shot. And I just hate it when I watch uh, movies in particular, but TV as well, when you just see, you know, all these different sizes of shots just kind of juxtaposed with no real reason. Anyway, that's one of my pet peeves is just watching things poorly edited, in my point of view. Uh, but so when I watch this, I love, because when you, you spend this whole movie... In the, where you're mostly just seeing people in these sharing frames and in medium shots. And and so the first time when you're in that cafe and they cut into a single shot of Jimmy Stewart or Margaret Sullivan, it it's like, ooh, now this is important. You know, it really lets you know that something's different. Right. Now, anyway. I love that. I love that nerdy stuff. What else? <laughs> um, I don't know. I uh, I don't know. It's your pop. Would you? Um, so you've seen you got mail. One one thing we sometimes do is a big game we play is like, how would you remake it today? Oh, that's interesting. And I think we could still do that because you got mail is now what twenty years old, thirty probably yeah. close. Was it the late nineties? Um, yeah, I it it was. I mean, I think in a way you've got mail kind of smartly kind of. Um, raise the stakes a little bit. Yeah. Like, I think it's actually interesting, the idea of having a rival business that would put the other one out of business, so like, and to, to kind of put someone's livelihood at, at stake. I think they probably watched this movie and were like, okay, this is great, but, like, there's too much about this other incidental character, this boss, that we don't really care, care about. about. Like, why is he taking up all of the movie? So he's probably gone completely, right? Yeah. And yeah, it, well, she's the boss. And they're both bosses. Yeah. So they've taken... She owns her own bookstore, and um, and he owns the rival tra- chain bookstore. Um, and But they have this secret online yeah. romance. So they've taken the boss character and kind of split it amongst each of them. Yeah. But if I was remaking it today, it's a good question. I think I would make it... I would set it in, like... Venice Beach, and it would take place at, like, Cafe Gratitude. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, they'd, they'd both be, like, kind of cool waiters that are, like, also doing stand-up at UCB or something. 
Oh, make them stand up comics. No, that's nice. If you make them stand up comics, because then you can have a great scene where they're roasting each other. Oh, there you go. Yeah, that's good. And um, I guess they can't really correspond. Well, they would obviously like match on Tinder or something. Or no, like it wouldn't be letters. It would have to be some kind of cool um, online secret app. Like maybe an app where you find your soulmate, but it's like anonymous or something because people are tired of Tinder. And that's it. It's like the anti-Tinder. <laughs> yes. Where people are like, I'm not just, you can't swipe a person based on how they look anymore. Yes. Yeah. Oh, we're onto something. Yeah. Oh, this is good. It's, it's based on like your intellectual connections or something. Yeah. Um, Anti-Tinder. Yes. And so they, they, they match and they connect very deeply on this app, but they don't realize that they're, they both work at this, the same place. And they're in their rival comics. And they're both trying to get out. They're both trying to get on to like the main stage. Oh yeah, that's a good idea. Oh yeah, so maybe they maybe they're improvisers and they're in each other's shows, but they but they don't get along on stage. And they don't improvise well together. Yeah, they have all these things in common. Oh, this is pretty good actually. <laughs> I'm really enjoying our version. <laughs> and so, who plays? Um, Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, who plays the two uh, improvisers? Oh boy, Aubrey Plaza. Yes, yes, hundred <laughs> percent. Oh yes. Or Zoe Deutsch because I just love her and I think she should be in everything. Either of those are very exciting for me. Um, and then I don't know a guy that's like charming and funny. Well, the thing is, Jimmy Stewart in this movie was really giving me like a Ryan Gosling vibe, like the whole time. He kind sure. of looks like like really you, young I mean, Jimmy Stewart. You know what? Put Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling in, in, this, in the, the <laughs> But I wouldn't cast. Version. I'm not saying I'm going to cast Ryan Gosling in this. No. This million dollar Netflix uh, rom com that I'm writing right now with you. <laughs> but I don't know. He was like funny and charming, but um, s- sexy. <laughs> I'm going through like a list of you know. For some reason, and this is probably the Tom Hanks connection, but it was like a younger Colin Hanks. A younger work. Colin Hanks. Uh, but he doesn't. Actually, he's not actually as funny. I'm trying to think of someone who's actually uh, like a young, up and coming comedy guy that would work. My brain's not working that way. Oh, there's so many. Um, the guy from Love would work. What's his name? Oh, um, Paul Rust. Yeah, Paul Rust would work. Sure. Um, who else? Oh, there's this great guy that I saw at um, at a club in LA last time I was there, and he's he's kind of like part of the Apatow crowd, but I can't. But he hasn't really broken out. But he was super charming. He played the piano, and I can't remember his name. Uh, so if you're on the internet and you know who I'm talking about, feel free to scream at me. Oh, or cast it older. Make it like Nick Kroll and. Um... Oh, I know who I would cast. <laughs> um, Paul Rudd. Uh, Bill Hader. Oh, I love Bill Hader! Oh my god. Bill Hader's the best. Bill Hader would be great. Yes. Bill Hader is our generation's Tom Hanks, I think. He kind of is. Slash Jimmy Series. <laughs> he would be great. So Bill Hader and Aubrey Plaza. Maybe Aubrey Plaza's too young now, because you got to kind of like... You can't have like just young women with like middle-aged men. It's I'm so over it. We're not doing that anymore. Yeah, it's fucking Yeah, that's boring. true. Also, both those people, maybe you need like... Oh, you know who it should be? Aubrey Plaza, Donald Glover. Yes. Oh, love it. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Great. Done. Let's just let's package. Yeah. So I'm represented by Meridian. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. I'm not, actually. We'll co-do we'll co- it. <laughs> co-do it. 
I love it. I love it so much. Yeah, Donald Glover, Aubrey Plaza, and then who plays Pepe? <laughs> uh, Finn Wolfhard. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so... And what, what, what do we call it? Um... I got nothing good. Happy gratitude. <laughs> I don't know. Anti Tinder is my is all I have right now, and yeah. I don't love that. Uh, we so yeah, we've got all the elements. Mismatched. Mismatched. That's not bad. It's terrible, but it's not a bad working title. We, yeah. we, we can come up better. All right, this is fun. All right, so <laughs> don't steal this idea because we will sue the fuck out of you. This is a good one, actually. <laughs> I could do this all day. Like, I could come up with, like, 12 different versions of this. Like, they work at Sport Check, and she's, like, uh... Where, where I'm just like, no, we peaked. I would be Olympian. He, you know... See, because I'm like, no, I could probably write this version that we're talking about right now. With the Sport Check <laughs> version, I'm out. I can't do it. <laughs> but it is, it is a great... I don't know. I just... I thought it was just, um... Yeah, it's, it's, it's rare to see a movie that... Also feels really contemporary in a weird way. It is interesting, and the more I go back and rewatch a lot of these older movies, it's funny how there's little moments that do kind of speak to now. Like we we kind of made a joke of it, but there's that moment where she talks about working at a different company, and how, yeah. and how she says that he's a gentleman because when he says he wants to go back in the storage room, he just wants to go back in the storage room. I know. Where you just get the sense like, oh right, somebody has tried to do not pleasant things to you at work. Uh, but she just kind of laughs it off because, what do you expect? <laughs> um, but then it's also... Uh, I did the most awkward laugh there possible because I didn't know what to no, say. No, it's terrible. I was like... <laughs> but there's also just... I mean, and this is something that's interesting to talk about too, is this concept of... Because it's not uncommon. We were kind of making fun of it when we were watching a movie. But the idea of Margaret Sullivan's character, you know, she calls her pen pal her boyfriend... Yes. Uh, but, we, but we've but we also never been privy to their letters. Right, which um, I assume are highly intimate. Yeah, super <laughs> racy. I love that moment when she's reading the letter and she just mumbles through parts of it yes. as she's trying to find the little it's quotes. It's so adorable. Um, but that's just it. Like, maybe like, we don't know what they've promised to each other, what they've said to each other in these letters. Despite the fact they've never met in person. So we we were making fun of the fact that she thinks she's going to be engaged after meeting him the first time, but you know we don't know what kind of promise he's made, the things he said to her. Oh, in the letters, but I guess he would have done this. He's written these things before, after knowing who she is, or no? I guess yeah. these are in previous letters. Well, how much time passes between? I guess it's not very much, is it? Between him knowing who she is, it's just a couple of days. Yeah. So I guess this was beforehand. But I don't know. I mean, I guess if you sort of have these, like... She's on, like, a real flight of fancy, you know? She doesn't have much. She works in this terrible Hungarian department store. She's a victim of sexual assault. (laughs) She's in love. You know, she lives with her mother. She's, she's, She's just investing a lot in this, in this, these delightfully romantic letters that she has. Yeah, and she even makes this, this super, like... 1940s comment about when 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 they're kind of pissing contest away with each other, uh, where she's like, "Well, I might not even be here on Monday because I'll be taken care of." Oh yeah, and, and, and alludes right. to the fact that she's only working in this job until 
she gets married and then doesn't have to work anymore. I don't blame her. That sounds great. <laughs> I don't blame her, but it's just such a sign of the times. Yeah. Right? The idea that she's just like, you know, he's he's on a career path. Right. He wants to go from being a clerk to being the manager one day. Where for her, she's pro- even though she's a great salesperson and goes after it with vigor mm-hmm. and could easily become the manager of this place one day, that's not at all what, you know, the character... They're they're leading the character towards right, but even Jimmy Stewart kind of flips it on her head when he talks about this this uh, how her hypothetical boyfriend came into the store and he expects to survive on her salary as a sales lady and see how she feels about that. Yeah, so that's kind of interesting. I like that. Well, I like and I liked what he was doing there because I wanted I I took it as him testing to see. And what was nice, too, in that scene was she was defending him still. She was mm-hmm. like, she wasn't letting go of him just because of all these these physical things that he mentioned about the fact that he was <laughs> overweight and attractive for his type. It was my favorite <laughs> bit. Um, and older and, you know, unemployed. She, You see her, you know, trying to make peace with all those things and then finally breaking only when she finds out that she's going to be the sugar mama. Uh, I guess, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I guess it's it's sort of... Um, yeah, it's interesting because I think it's like a great... Um, it's like a really almost like... I think, I think because of You've Got Mail, I had the assumption that this movie was going to be way like sweeter and more of like kind of a confectionery, like frothy sort of delight. And I was actually surprised in how like rooted in reality it is, and how dark it is, and how um, how it really doesn't mind sort of like piercing these characters' bubbles like all the time. Yeah, like really setting them up to fail over and over again. But the movie is still like very sweet and and charming at the same time. Mm-hmm. But it's, I think we a lot of us have this this mentality that a lot of these older movies are are these really sugary, super sweet things yeah. that don't have like these other layers of depth to them. Yeah, and it just makes you want to watch like every single Ernst Lubitsch movie in existence from now on. Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely going to probably start a deep dive into a lot of his other stuff because uh, I've seen Heaven Can Wait. But I don't remember at all. <laughs> I mean, once I start watching it, it'll probably start clicking in. But I think I saw it years ago. Someone in film school had a copy of it, and in in our VHS passes around, I'm sure I grabbed it and and watched it early one morning. Yeah, and it's also a secret Christmas movie, so you could. Oh. This movie is. This movie? Yeah. Oh, I guess it is more so than even. It's funny. I watched for the first time this year. It's a Wonderful Life. Another Jimmy Stewart movie, which I always, you know, thought of as a big Christmas movie. It's barely a Christmas movie. <laughs> it's really only the last act takes place over Christmas, which is very similar to this movie. Yeah. But this movie isn't one of those movies that people consider a Christmas movie, really. I think this film, you get you get all the layers of, of Jimmy Stewart. You get, like, stroppy, pissed off Jimmy Stewart. You which get, is a great Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, I was like, No! <laughs> Um, you get, um, like, love, Lauren, like, sincere, romantic J.B. Stewart. You kind of get, like, a whiff of, like, a Jimmy Stewart who's, like, striving for more. Yeah, we get those, that, that, that scene you were talking about. Earnest, about. idealistic Jimmy Stewart, which is what, I wish you got, like, sex-obsessed, um, irate, scary, vertigo Jimmy Stewart, which is <laughs> my favorite one. 
But we just don't see those scenes. <laughs> that's when he. That's, that's after the kiss. That's after you see her her ankles at the very end. His ankles. <laughs> yeah, that I still don't really understand that scene. But maybe you have to be in the 1940s. To I get think it. that was such a the bow-legged thing. I don't know. It, I'm trying to think of what a comparison would be now, and I can't come up with one. Uh, but I think it was just one of those things that I think I don't know that it was tall and lanky, or I don't know what it was. I can't even pretend. <laughs> I'd have to look it up. Uh, but it, but it must have been a big thing because that's that was the button of the movie. Right. It's him hiking up his pants, his pants to show off his uh, his straps, his sock straps. Yeah. Uh, and that was like their last thing, where they could have went with the cigar box, cigarette box. Yeah, maybe they tested it with audiences. And, and, and the socks <laughs> went better. They must have. But it was another callback joke. Yes. You know it. it There's amazing callbacks in this movie. Yeah, even but even like the the threat of Pepe. Like hire ended up, ended up hiring, um, what's his name? The uh, the repl- the new Pepe. Oh, Rudy. Rudy, who? And here's what I love about that, because Pepe. Let's be honest here. Pepe's kind of a piece of shit. We went from loving Pepe. I don't know. I don't know if you shifted over to Pepe over the course of the movie. But uh, Pepe, I'm on Team Pepe. You're on Team Pepe. But like the first time we meet him, he they're talking. It's like, are you gonna stay? Are you gonna stay late and help? I'm just a kid. But he doesn't <laughs> want to do it. But then he's the first one. He, he saves the boss from killing himself and then instantly uses it to angle for promotion. And then... That's capitalism, baby. <laughs> it's true. And then the next day at work, he uh, he basically tells everyone the boss tried to kill himself and his oh, wife... Oh, yeah. Cheated he, on him with a fellow employee. He's a huge gossip. Huge gossip. Yeah. And then uh, goes out of his way to hire his own replacement... Whom he treats terribly. It's true. Uh, so I like to think Pepe is our secondary villain of the movie. <laughs> because what happens is is new Pepe, the replacement, uh, ends up getting to go out for the most delicious Christmas Eve dinner with the boss. Yeah. It's sweet, in a way. Yeah. So I think that Pepe got punished in the end. Because doesn't he say he's off to be someone Santa Claus? Yes. Pepe's going to be one of those guys in the storage room that's inviting you to the storage room oh, not to no. stock inventory. I hope not. I guarantee you that's who Pepe becomes. <laughs> He's one of those guys. Pepe's not working there within a year. I'm calling it. The movie does have a strange moral compass, but I think it's because Ernest Lubitsch is like cynical in a way that is actually really refreshing. Like, you know, and I think maybe it's because he is European. Like, he just kind of has a different understanding maybe of like how these movies should operate and um he has a different lens on like american culture of the time yeah well the best like billy wilder too yeah but the best i think i think the best people that work in comedy are cynics you know but they're cynics with heart they're cynics that want to believe that the world can be a better place but also can look at it for what it is Mm -hmm. you know but but at the same time can look at it for what it could be and though, and that's the kind of stories they want to tell. They want to shine a light on the world, but also on what the world could become. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's, you know, the best thing you can you can do when you're telling, you know, stories with comedy is is a spoonful of sugar. You know. Anyway, <laughs> that's my thoughts on it. I loved it. I thought it was great. I uh, I'm on Team Lubitsch. Yeah, uh, the Lubitsch touch. 
Yeah. Is real. It's real. It is real. <laughs> uh, any final thoughts? Um, well, I guess the thing I'm just going to take from it is how to write better jokes that are like multi-layered and kind of evolve throughout the course of the movie where you sort of plot out a joke or like an overarching concept for a joke, like almost like act by act. Yeah. And make sure that the payoff for the final like iteration of the joke is like a big comic set piece in a way that totally surprises you and is like more funny and brilliant than you could have ever imagined. Yeah, it's funny. I try to do like I know I wonder I I'd love to know I'd love to track down. I wonder do they talk about Lubitsch much in in, in regards to like that kind of stuff in this well In the Cameron Crow book? Yeah. Um yeah, like um, Ernst right. Lubitsch, I don't like to use the word seminal, but he is a seminal influence on Billy Wilder. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, they, there's like, you know, a lot of, um, chapters that kind of discuss in, in detail sort of how their relationship, like, I think they were, they, they were also, I think Lubitsch was a little bit of a mentor figure for Wilder as well. Oh. So cool. really just like what impressions all of his, his work had on him as a, as a filmmaker and also... Like, they kind of go movie by movie. Yeah. Oh, amazing. Oh, I gotta find this book. You'll never find it. It's so hard. It'll be now. Your quest will become mine. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I went to the strand to try and find, like, another copy so I could give my friend back his copy. And they were like, yeah, there's one on the shelf. And then I, like, looked the whole bookstore and I couldn't find it. Well, I didn't look the whole book because it's a humongous bookstore in New York. But they said it was on the shelf and it was, like, this ghost book that, that doesn't really exist. Oh. So I think I'll still be tracking it down for the rest of my life. But you know what's amazing is that we live in this time where it's so easy to get everything. There's yeah. something really beautiful about there, there's being this book existing that you're dying to find and you can't. Yeah, it is really great. It is really, really... I love things like that because um, I love tangible objects. <laughs> I, I do too. Well, I, I, you, you're saying I'm, I'm single-handedly keeping DVD shops. Yeah. But even like I'll come across... You know, a DVD I've been looking to upgrade my VHS from. Like, I just found how to get ahead in advertising. Oh, yeah. Uh, where, where I couldn't find, even on Amazon, a DVD copy. And I literally just found one in a used store on the weekend. And I had did a little dance. And I showed my wife. And she's like, that movie's stupid. And I was like, oh! <laughs> Destroyer of my heart. Um, but yeah, the, the, I think the takeaway I'll take from this, too, is, is that, that Lubish Touch thing. Because I know that's something I try to do. When I go through, I try to really track jokes and find runners and find ways to kind of bring them back. Uh, and and even uh, on the movie we just did, we ended up doing a couple while we were in production because mm-hmm. uh, we we'd sh- luckily shot a scene that took place earlier in the movie. And this one little thing that we thought would just be a small little joke in the scene became like a much bigger thing that everyone loved. And so later on, we did this scene where there's this moment where we're like, actually, what if we replace this idea? And did a callback to that, and then found ourselves arcing stuff as we went along. Yeah, um, it's interesting because of how it played. Yeah, because I think there's a different distinction between callbacks and, and what he's doing here, which is like, yeah, I've never thought of it as like an, an evolution as opposed to like you do the same thing again, you do the same yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, no, I, but yeah, exactly. But to that point, like what we do, we did do that, and that we're like we saw a way to like expand it and turn it into something else. Cool. Uh, which was doesn't usually happen. That was just us being lucky. Uh, but but it's the kind of thing, especially in comedy, it's like you're just like testing stuff out as you go along. And so I, I'd love to know in his process at what point, like 
he came upon the idea of the cigar box, a cigarette box. And at one point, you know, if it was right away that he realized he could use it to have the guy crash into later, or if that's something he discovered on draft five, (laughs) you know, at what point, how fully formed did some of these ideas come or did it, is it stuff that he stumbled into along the way? Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. But I guess part of like the beauty of making a film is like having those discoveries. Yeah, exactly. Well, thanks for coming over. Oh, thank you. The popcorn was so good. Oh, yay. <laughs> well, you're welcome back anytime. Cool. Thank you. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Thanks for joining us for The Shop Around the Corner. If you like the show, please subscribe to the podcast and spread the word about it. You can find me on Twitter, at Lalon Jeremy, and go to Facebook for Black Hole Films. Leave a review there, or an Apple podcast, or wherever it is you listen to this thing. And until next time, go watch something you've never seen before. Thanks. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat.